welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the OMFIF podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy from some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Katerina Atkins, Program Coordinator at OMFIF Sustainable Policy Institute, and today we will be discussing the topic of COP28 outcomes, as well as establishing a new framework for international climate finance and driving progress beyond the climate conference in Dubai. I'm delighted to be joined today by Vera Songwe, a non-resident senior fellow in the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution. She is currently a founder and chair of the board of the Liquidity and Sustainability Facility. Before that, she was an undersecretary general at the United Nations and executive secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. And also she is a co-chair of independent high-level expert group now. Welcome to our podcast, Vera, and thank you for joining me today. We have a series of insightful questions that will delve into the key outcomes and challenges arising from the recently concluded COP28 climate summit. So let's jump into our first question. The COP28 climate summit has just concluded with an agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Some call it less ambitious than many had hoped, while others highlight that it is historic in the sense that it's for the first time that it recognizes the need to transition away from fossil fuels. What is your view in general on the reduction of fossil fuels and why do you think this topic was considered a crucial test for the credibility of COP? We know that uh, the carbon emissions are an important part of the hurting of our planet. And so reducing carbon emissions invariably then becomes an important conversation. Fossil fuels are a huge component of that. And so, you know, having some language in the COP conversations that indicates that we acknowledge you know, the impact of fossil fuels on, on the economy was important and is very important. And so I think from that perspective, the fact that we have the language is is, is a positive. You know, we want to keep the, pla- the, the planet at 1.5 degrees. So everything and anything we can do to do that is always going to be the, the, the sort of maximum of our ambition. But we also know from the IEA that we need to do a lot more to be able to develop and supply and utilize renewable energies that we have. And it's going to take a little bit of a while. And so the transition, I think, is maybe a slightly reflective of the fact that the markets and supplies of renewables are not yet there. I think many people would have wished for a phase out, you know, with, with, with sort of a timeline that marries the innovation capacity for renewables. Uh, we got transition. It's better to have something than not to have anything. And so it is a historic agreement because it essentially says the world now agrees that fossil fuels are an important contributor and that we need to begin to look at alternative ways of providing energy. So, so yes, it was, it was historic. It was important. It is beginning to fill the glass. And so the glass is not uh, empty. The glass is full. Now we need to sort of begin to take it to uh, the glass is getting full. Now we need to fill it. And I think that's the challenge for the next cup or, as we work towards that. Thank you. I liked your comparison with the glass and the glass is not empty anymore. But I also heard you saying that there needs to be done a lot more. And ahead of COP28, the UN urged that the progress was slow and didn't reflect the urgency called for by science. 
And COP28 has seen the conclusion of this first global stock take, which was assessing countries' NDCs. What are the key takeaways and what are the key areas where progress has been lacking and how were they addressed at COP28? I think with these meetings, just the fact that you have the meeting, it was historic in the sense that we had the largest amount of people. We had an important part of the private sector there. Clearly, the global stock take showed that we were falling behind. We are coming from a place of COVID. We are coming from a place of war in Ukraine. We're coming from a place of full fuel and fertilizer crisis. We're coming from a place of sort of contraction of global economies. And so there has been, unfortunately, backsliding in commitments. And I think that what COP was able to show and demonstrate is that, you know, collective backsliding is not going to a 1.5 degree planetary comfortable climate make. And so my sense and I hope is that, you know, there will be some revisions or some revisiting of some of the, the, the commitments where we've seen substantial backsliding on coal on fossil on, and, you know, on the other side, we had some good announcements around methane that also, you know, show us that we are, even if we are collectively not doing as well, we are beginning to open new territory in different areas and focusing on them. So global message, not nearly where we need to be. Uh, a lot of black backsliding and a lot of backsliding from, from sort of the leading economies. So, so again, it's a question of leadership. I think then I hope that we will be able to see a, a different story as hopefully inflation is beginning to, to go under control and maybe there will be a renewed interest in sort of meeting and becoming once more ambitious in the NDC targets. But the NDC targets for emerging and developing countries is only as good as the financing that is available. And so I think also that there is a realization that your NDC targets need to be able to be funded and some countries, particularly in the developing and emerging markets, are revising downwards their NDCs because they're not getting the funding that, that you know, they expected. And so we cannot just talk about the global stock take on the ambition. We have to talk about you know, the financing of the ambition and making sure that those two meet. And that's why in our report, we call for $2.4 trillion, of which $1 trillion of external financing from MDBs and the private sector to meet this demand. Perfect that you mentioned financing because my next question was regarding the loss and damage fund. It's what was a significant outcome of COP27 and good news that there has been already some pledges made during COP28. So what from your point of view, the challenges that are associated with the loss and damage contributions and how do they compare to the impacts of climate change? Again, one of the historic natures of COP28 was, you know, the establishment and the agreement around the loss and damage fund. But even beyond that, normally we, we sort of have this fund. I mean, the agreement to, to, to establish it was done in COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. This was kind of the big, you know, success of the Egyptian COP. And so the loss and damage conversation really started with Egypt. As we went into to UAE, I think that the biggest moment was that we now have resources in the loss and damage fund. The UAE itself uh, showed leadership by pledging 100 million into the fund and was then able to coalesce and bring many others around to see where we will end up. I think by the time the fund was closed, we're just over $700 million, if I'm, my memory serves me correct with the numbers. 
But so again, this is historic that, you know, within a year of establishing a fund, we're almost at a billion dollars of contributions for, uh, into that fund. So, so that this is a, a big and important moment. I think, however, that billion dollars is good and interesting and useful. But in our report, we're calling for $300 billion annually. So we're very, very far away from where we need to be with, with the fund. And so again, you know, what what is what more is needed to capitalize on this fund is going to be what is important. And I think associated with that is the policies that we are calling for from MDBs to suspend any kinds of debt service payments. Immediately a country is hit by a climate shock uh, so that the country can use its resources, first of all, to take care of its citizens. So I, I think this combinations, the loss and damage fund alone is not the answer to every problem, but it's going to have to be a combination of instruments for which the loss and damage fund is a fundamental part of the menu. Thank you, Vera. And as you mentioned, the report that you were working on, I just think that for our listeners, it's worth outlining what was the research focused on and what were the key findings from your research regarding the financial needs of developing countries to address this climate change by 2030? So we, we did two reports. Uh, we did a first report for COP27 for the Egyptian COP under the independent high-level expert group on climate finance, so finance for climate action. In the first report, I think uh, what we really sought out to do was, you know, a lot of the debate has been around 100 billion, and the 100 billion was an important number to show commitment but it wasn't a number that was commensurate with the size and magnitude of the challenge and or it wasn't a number that was deductive in, in its approach to say, you know, this is why we need it, this is what we need it for. In our first report, I think we kind of tried to break down where are the needs and we, you know, we ended up with huge energy transformation needs. Remember that in some geographies, what you need to do is transition from fossil fuel energies to cleaner ones. In some geographies, you actually just need new energy. A lot of the developing economies in Africa and Southeast Asia are still energy poor, and so they need a new energy. Then there was a whole conversation around, you know, what we need for loss and damage, for resilience and for adaptation. And then, of course, a big conversation around nature-based solutions. So in the first report, we kind of broke down, you know, where are the needs and how do we engage with those needs? How much is going to be needed? That's how we came up with the 2.4 trillion of which 1 trillion in external financing, excluding China, because even though China is an emerging uh, market economy, China can and is already funding substantial amounts of its transition to clean energy. In this new report that we just launched at COP28, the idea was then to say, okay, we know where the resources are needed, we know how much is needed. And so we did a little bit more work on how do we accelerate implementation. And then what we went into was sort of breaking down the components of who should do more. First part, governments need to improve on policies. Governments need to have country-based ownership and platforms. Second, we need a lot of multilateral development resources. We need to triple MDB resources so that we can actually leverage that even more. There is going to be an important grant component, for example, for IDA, the poorest countries. Philanthropy needs to come to the table. The bilateral system needs to deliver. If you have what we are calling globally concessional money from the MDBs, uh, from grant financing, from philanthropy, 
uh, then you can begin to think about how you crowd in the private sector. So essentially leveraging the private sector. Overall, we're asking for if you triple multilateral development bank and grant financing from you know somewhere in the other of 150 billion it is today, 130 billion. If you triple that, you get to about four, 400 billion. With 400 billion, you can raise 600 billion from the private sector. In this report, we focus a lot on the instruments that are going to be needed to be able to crowd in the private sector. So issues like first loss, providing the private sector with more guarantees, providing the, the, the private sector with sort of getting concessional money to do a lot of the project preparation, the project development, so that the private sector doesn't have to take sort of greenfield risk or you know construction risk, but they can come in. We also then talk a little bit about the additional financing that is going to be needed for nature, for biodiversity. We didn't talk a lot about nature and biodiversity in the first report, but a little bit more emphasis on that in the second report. We focus a little bit also on the just transition and, and what that means overall for uh, making sure that we meet our 1.5 degree objectives. We do some stock taking of, you know, have we met the 100 billion and in, in the context of building trust to be able to deliver on, on the objectives. But it's really about, you know, how can we accelerate implementation? How can we get everybody around the table to co-create and deliver on projects, institutional investors, private sector, in all its dimensions, the public sector policy, as I said, which is homegrown country platforms, country policies that can then direct one in the direction in which we will get faster reductions of emissions. Thank you, Vera. Thank you for elaborating a little bit on the uh, financing mechanisms, as well as um, mentioning the role of policymakers and uh, financial institutions and multilateral development banks. I know that now the topic of blended finance is also becoming quite important. So if you have any further thoughts on this financing, innovative financing mechanisms and how to accelerate mobilization of finance, but that was great that you have already mentioned, and I definitely enjoyed reading the paper that was produced by the independent high-level expert group. And was just wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about the group itself and what is the role of it in, in the leadership. As you mentioned, that there should be this leadership to direct the finance in the right direction so and to mobilize in the right amount. So if you could tell me a little bit more about this. No, thank you. Thank you. And maybe just before I go to that, one of the things that we emphasize in the report is the need to make sure that countries don't incur additional debt uh, to be able to, to tackle the climate crisis. So there's a whole conversation around, you know, what we do and how we can improve on debt resolution mechanisms. That leads me a little bit into sort of the innovative financing around debt for climate swaps. You know, we've seen a number of this happen. How how much more can we do? We have, of course, the RST, the Resistance and, and uh, Sustainability Trust, the Resilience and Sustainability Trust from the from the IMF, where we're using special drawing rights SDRs to fund a new long-term financing mechanism through the IMF for countries that are willing uh, to have a growth-led uh, climate agenda. So I think these are some of the innovations that are on the table today. We need to do more innovation, but we need to be able to be innovative, but around things that we can scale very quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think one of the things we talk about in the report is, yes, pilots are good, 
but you know, given the urgency of the agenda, we need to do if we if we believe that debt upon nature swaps are the way to go in some cases, can we scale them? Can we do them quicker? Can we do them faster? Protect indigenous communities while also being able to do some more regenerative forestry uh, that conserves the the climate. So all of this doing you know in a manner. Remember, I said two point four trillion. Uh, 1 trillion is going to be external financing, 1.4 trillion is domestic resource mobilization. And so we need to find ways of engendering sort of financing in local communities. One of those issues is carbon markets and carbon financing, a lot of work around improving on the integrity of carbon markets so that we can actually uh, begin to deploy carbon markets as one of the solutions that will provide equity for additional new investments. So that's... um, uh, coming back a little bit to 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 the question on innovation, I want to talk about debt, debt for climate swaps, and uh, and carbon markets. Now, what is the independent high level expert group on finance for climate action? It's a group that is co chaired by. I have the honor of working with Lord Stern, Nick Stern, uh, out of the London School of Economics, and myself. The secretariat is uh, with Amma Bhattacharya and Eleanor Subramanian, and then we have a team of very very experienced. I would name them all because there are 20 of them and I'll have to say something about each one of them and that will take the time. But a group of 20 very experienced private sector, public sector policy, finance, research, people who have been with the COP process for very long. So bring in the historical information around COP, but also people who are looking forward in terms of, you know, what more we can do. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, I would say, an excellent expert group that allows us to then bring together all of these ideas in a way that hopefully, we hope, can influence policy. So for example, happy to say that because of the report we released this year, the UAE had a climate finance framework declaration, which was signed by the UK, by India, by Senegal, I think 12 countries all together, sort of are the forerunners of that UAE finance climate framework declaration, which essentially says, you know, we're willing as leaders to come behind the suggestions and recommendations in the report and begin to act based on what the report is saying. So I think it really is a report that provides a little bit more direction on the financing side. It's a report that allows to build consensus around a couple of things so that we're all talking from the same base sheet. And then it provides, I think, material for advocacy as, as people sort of begin to think about where we need to go, what we need to do and how quickly all of this is needed. And of course, you you mentioned developing uh, emerging markets and developing economies several times. And when talking about debt for nature swaps, for instance, already I know that several African countries have already completed this. And you headed the UN Economic Commission for Africa. So I wanted to get your views on Africa's great green transformation. Uh, we know that Africa is, is exposed to extreme external shocks, including climate change, energy, food crisis. And what are the key areas for leveraging resources to finance climate action and green growth and resilience in Africa? No, we've done a lot of work. The Economic Commission for Africa has done a lot of work on this. We're doing even more work now uh, out of Brookings, uh, out of many BCGs, Boston Consulting is doing some work on, on, on this. I think that all of this came to a head with the Africa Climate Summit under the leadership of President Ruto, where, you know, we started talking about how can we make sure that the sort of 
climate agenda is an agenda that is also an agenda that provides for growth on the continent. And essentially the question is now, how do we use our resources, not just to become providers of energy for other geographies, but can we use that energy to begin to transform commodities, move into an industrialization that is green? Part of it is also being motivated by, you know, policies such as the common border adjustment mechanism in the European Union, which are essentially anti-competitive measures because they're saying anything that's not green that comes into the EU is going to be taxed. It's an anti-competitive measure, but hopefully it pushes Africa to quickly transition into more green industry. And so part of the conversation is then how do we do green industrialization with our iron ore, with our steel, with our cement? Is there, and that is sort of room for innovation in how one produces some of this in our fertilizer, for example, as well. So there is, I think, a tension there where part of the conversation on green industrialization requires, you know, leveling the playing field on policies so that we don't see the kinds of policies that Europe, for example, is putting in place. But it also is pushing Africa to say, can we transition to a different kind of industrialization that creates jobs? that allows for more stability and more sustainability of our economies that actually brings the African economy into global supply chains. Even as we talk about the French shoring or the shortening of supply chains, I think they are still going to be sort of trading, global trading dynamics and African needs. Today, Africa is just 2% of global trade. We're hoping that with the sort of green industrialization conversation in the areas of energy, the areas of electric vehicles, tourism, a lot of fast-moving consumer goods, packaging. There is quite an array uh, of opportunity where Africa has the raw materials. Africa already has some of the industry. And so essentially becoming part of a more robust, uh, resilient uh, global supply chain system is something that we think is inevitable and should happen. On If you look at uh, the transportation systems, for example, Africa needs more buses. We need more two-wheelers. Uh, we need more more trains. And so essentially, we don't want to just import all of this pre-produced and pre-fabricated from Asia or Europe or, or the United States. We would like to start producing some on the continent. Thank you. And in terms of finance, I appreciate you have already mentioned this a little bit before in terms of different mechanisms and tools and instruments. But I know there is African Development Bank that is uh, working hard on mobilizing this climate finance. But what is your view on, on this topic? I think this, you know, again, we are asking for a trillion dollars of external uh, financing. We're asking the private sector to come in at $600 billion to leverage and mobilize additional financing for the issue. What we are seeing is Africa essentially is shut out of capital markets. We see that, you know, in the global issuance of green sustainable bonds, for example, which is about $300 billion, Africa is only about $8 billion of that, you know, and a lot of it is two or three countries on the continent. We will need to see more. And so there needs to be sort of better incentives put in place for African economies to issue green bonds. But that also means that African economies need to have market access at much, much cheaper rates. Right now, it's very prohibitive. Uh, to issue even a plain vanilla bond, let alone actually, interestingly enough, it's even more expensive to issue a sustainability-linked bond uh, or get a sustainability-linked loan. The other issue that we're facing is sort of the whole transition financing companies that want to transition from coal and fossil fuels 
into clean energy and not getting the resources that they need. And so we will be able, you know, we need to under the sort of just uh, energy transition, the need for country platforms, and then for those country platforms to be funded. I think we're seeing some tensions now with countries, and I mentioned this before, that are sort of doing their plans, but not getting the financing that's needed. I think we also have in the on the financing space, of course, uh, difficulties just getting the kind of grant financing that is needed for adaptation. And, and, and for that, we know that it's very, going to be very difficult to crowd in the private sector. So we need grant financing. We need additional cheap long-term concessional resources to handle these issues. We're not seeing enough of it coming. On the whole biodiversity front, there is a lot of work that's needed. So I think finance still remains you know, overall, the biggest constraint uh, to how we get to, 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 to net zero. But again, like I said, the good news is that the private sector is coming to the table much more. We are hoping that the public sector will have some additional resources uh, through the multilateral development bank system that can then help to de-risk the private sector to, to make some of these issues. Uh, and then there's a lot of innovation that is happening even in the private sector itself. You know, Nature Conservancy, a lot of the big banks are doing a lot of innovation around the, the climate agenda. A lot more sustainability work is happening in these financial institutions. So we hope that uh, $1.27 I think, was the number that was used or spent on climate finance last year. Unfortunately, only about 12% went to emerging and developing economies. So yes, there is a lot more going in, maybe not always to the right places. So we need some to go to the emerging and uh, low-income economies. So as uh, you mentioned previously, there should be more leadership and again, international community collaboration for this to go in the right way. So COP 28 and in general, COP gives this platform for international community together and take more effective and urgent action. So looking ahead, what are the next steps for next COPs from your point of view and what is needed to foster the political will that is needed to implement these changes? Again, I think starting from where we left off, the next COP will do that, right? Is As I said, the glass is now no longer empty. And so what we need to do is fill it a little bit more on the transition conversation. Again, as, as emerging and developing market economies, what we need to know, I think we've now that we have the word sort of transition out, we don't want stranded assets in many of the emerging market economies, but we also want those economies to be able to use the resources they have to accelerate the transition. So big debates around gas. I think, you know, we're going to continue using gas to help us accelerate the transition and that should be funded. And so, you know, when we talk about transition finance and the lack of transition finance, some of it is not being able to have enough resources going to the sectors like uh, the gas sector. So hopefully we will see some of that happening, more transition finance available at affordable long-term and accessible cost. Hopefully we will see a lot more conversations around phasing out of coal, phasing down completely maybe, and, and maybe even more aggressive conversations around oil and, and what we need to do around that. Plastics is a big one. We've made a lot of progress on plastics, an important one for many emerging market economies because it's a biodiversity conversation as well. Hopefully we see some of that happening. Loss and damage, the fund, uh, we said the good news is, again, there was some there's some resources in it. Substantially more is needed. Our shareholders, and this is where leadership is important, the report from the independent expert group to the G20 on multilateral development 
banks calls for tripling of funding to, for the, to the multilateral development system. That's really a shareholder uh, issue. And so we hope that the shareholders will be able to increase the capital of these institutions. I am particularly and personally arguing for more new issuance of SDRs. We hope that the SDRs that need to be online will be online to institutions like the African Development Bank and other prescribed uh, holders. But we also think that new fresh liquidity is going to be needed to deal with the climate crisis. And so maybe thinking about something more institutional like you know, the special drawing rights, a new issuance, but this time targeted towards vulnerable, climate vulnerable countries, you know, so hopefully the islands get a lot more allocations, countries that are particularly exposed, you know, will be, should be major beneficiaries of, of an allocation like that, I think is hopefully something that we will be discussing in the next COP. There is a, a huge conversation, of course, around how we green the private sector, uh, the hard to abate sectors, the shipping industry, the transport industry, the building industry. I think uh, hopefully, again, in the next COP, we can have a lot more on the methane side, conversations on the agricultural food systems. We've, we had some this year, but maybe not as far as we would like to have gone. But at least again, they are on the table now in a much more structured way. And so hopefully by the time we get to the next COP, we can deal with that in a much more effective manner. And finally, around nature and, and questions around nature conservancy and biodiversity, that again, we can see how not only are we putting that in sort of the table of nature of, of the public sector, but we can bring in, find models that allow for the private sector to come in to those spaces and help us with uh, improving on practices and, and, and uh, that can protect and conserve our biodiversity. Thank you very, very much, Vera, for sharing your insights. That was an amazing conversation, uh, excellent expertise. Thank you very much for sharing it with us and with our listeners. Uh, if you have any final remarks, I think that one of the things that we have seen a lot of this year has been, I talked about leadership. There has been quite substantial leadership from the Kenyan presidency, the French presidency, Mia Motley, the Brazilians, the Indians, each one of these you know, countries either under the G20, under the uh, Paris Peace Forum, on the MIAR inside the sort of multilateral development bank system, there has been really a convergence, you know, to then work with sort of the Bretton Woods systems and the UN to push this agenda. And I think hopefully that going forward, we have, of course, in the United States with President Biden and the Inflation Reduction Act, even though it has its, its sort of non-competitive issues, has been able to, I think, engender enough innovation and investment in, in these conversations, the Net Zero Act in Europe. So we've seen, I think we're beginning to see you know, the beginnings of the kind of leadership we need. The, the tension still is that a lot of this has been national, but we are fighting a global problem. And so, you know, we need that these activities are self-reinforcing of what is happening across borders and for cross generations. And I don't think we're really there yet. And that, that's, I think the next challenge for leadership is to do this in a way that is much more global because it is a global problem we're fighting and, and also in a way that ensures that we are looking forward to uh, the next generation and, and making sure that we hand over a 1.5 degree planet to them.
completely agree with you on the scale of it being global, but also just, yes. Uh, yeah. It's also yeah. hopefully will be a just transition for all. Thank you very much, Vera. And uh, many thanks to those who are listening to this podcast. We hope this recording has provided some valuable insights on this important topic. And let me remind you that you can subscribe to this and all other OMFIF podcasts on our channel on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you and happy beginning of the year, I suppose. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.